Hey, everybody. How are you? Awesome. Hey, uh, I just want to let everybody know, next month, just a few weeks from now, is my birthday. I wanted to give you time to start you know, shopping and all that kind of stuff. Um, but this is the big one. This is the big birthday, and I'm really excited about it. You guessed correctly. It's my 42nd birthday, and uh, that's the big one. You know, a couple years I turned 40, and as most of us do when we hit a milestone like that, or 20, or 40, or 60, or 80, or whatever it might be, we spend time reflecting. And I didn't want to do that, but I, I inevitably uh, did that. And, and I started looking at, like, what I had accomplished, how God had used me. And, and a question that most of us ask at certain milestones of our lives, am I where I thought I'd be at this point in my life? Who, who's asked that question of yourself? So I decided to, I wanted to inspire myself. I wanted my 40s to be an awesome decade. And so I decided to attend a TED conference. And you might know about TED, TED Talks. You've heard TED Talks. And they have regional conferences. And so there's one in Denver, TEDx Mile High. And I thought, what better way to kick off my 40s than to go to TEDx Mile High? And it was literally on my 40th birthday. So I grabbed a couple friends and we went. And I was really excited because the theme, as you could see, was wonder. This is the nice little book that they handed out when we went. And my hope was to go to TED and to be inspired and to reflect and to dream about the next decade or two of my life and to sort of dream about the next season. The theme was wonder. What a great theme for your 40s or your 20s or your 60s or whatever decade you're in. Wouldn't we like to just experience wonder on a regular basis? And so I thought, this is my life. I, I can't wait. So I took a couple of friends and we went, and inside the book there are speaker profiles, so you can read about who's speaking. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great, until I started reading it. And I looked at who the speaker list was. The first one was uh, Tamika Mallory. Uh, Tamika is a social justice activist. She's one of the four creators of the Women's March on D.C. back in 2017, has influenced millions of women around the world, and uh, civil rights activists as well. Dick Durrance, uh, he was a Vietnam photographer for the Army, very famous photographer and storyteller. He's had stuff in National Geographic and a ton of other places, a prize-winning, award-winning person. So I'm listening to those two and kind of then looking at myself. Third person I look, I flip over, and it's a guy named James Orsalak. And look at his title, Space Entrepreneur. Let me tell you what this guy does. He owns an asteroid mining company. Their mission is to harvest minerals and metals and things from asteroids and drop them back to earth because it doesn't destroy our planet and there's almost unlimited resources. Finally, this guy, Doug Vacock, and I have to read this because it, it's hard to get my mind around. He runs an organization dedicated to transmitting intentional signals to nearby stars and fostering the sustainability of human civilization on multi-generational timescales a project that could take centuries or millennia to succeed. What are you working on? <laughs> I mean, and I had to ask myself, like, where were those things on the list of possible vocations when I was in high school? When you sit down with a counselor and they're like, based on your aptitude and all this, you could be these things. I never saw a space entrepreneur or interstellar correspondent on that list or I would have been the first to sign up. So what happened was, I went to TEDx to be inspired, and, and truthfully, I was inspired. But I, I also saw this list of people doing incredible things, and it, and it made me look at my life and ask, well, what have I accomplished? Have you ever done that? 
You looked at somebody else and maybe what they have, what they do, all that sort of thing, and go, what have I done? I mean, think about it. There's an interstellar correspondent. There is a space entrepreneur. There's a women's march organizer. And then there's me. Larry Boatwright, <laughs> religious worker. If I'm being honest, at TEDx, a lot of self-doubt crept in. And when I look at the work that God's allowed me to do in my life, I can't help but compare myself to other people at times, especially in an event like this. And it left me wondering, does what I do even matter? My guess is I'm not alone in asking that question. And that all of us at some point in our life, we, we look at what we do and maybe what we've accomplished so far, and we ask questions like, what is my unique contribution to this world? And is who I am worth anything? Or is what I do, does it even matter? Think about the question that's the most common question we ask children. What do we say? What do you want to be when you grow up? And think about what you wanted to be, what you said when you were little. As adults, we do this horrible game uh, where we meet someone new and we ask the first, one of the first questions is, what do you do? For me, as a kid, I wanted to be a doctor. I really, as young as I can remember, I wanted to be a brain surgeon. I thought that sounded really, really cool. Um, and then I found out it was really, really hard. And I was like, I don't want to do that. And so <laughs> then I wanted to be a motocross racer. And I actually got to do that. That was a lot of fun. Then I wanted to be a rock star. And I, I did, that didn't pan out. See, here's the thing, though. Most of us, when we're little, we dream really big, don't we? See, the world hasn't told us that we can't do things yet. See, we still believe that we're creative and we're passionate about life and we could do almost anything that we wanted to do. But, but if we really scrape below the surface, what we really want to do is make a difference. We wanted to be somebody. We wanted to be good at something, to be who God created us to be. But all too often as adults, we feel like we're spinning our wheels or it's out of control or maybe we just didn't quite hit the mark. Who's with me? We're in a series today, Transformed, and we're in the next to last week. And it's been a fun series hearing people expressing how God's been meeting them in this. And this is one of the most important topics because it's about our vocation. Now, some of you got excited just for a second because you thought I said vacation. I didn't say vacation. After looking outside, we probably all could use one. I'm talking about vocation. And the question that we're wrestling with in this series is, is the gospel supposed to permeate and impact every part of our life? The answer is, you win the grand prize. Great. So what I want to do today is I want to explore what it would look like if the gospel had a radical impact and completely transform your perspective on your vocation. And maybe a good place to start is to ask the question, well, what is your vocation? And for most of us, when we think about our vocation, we think about the work that we do, don't we? We think about our J-O-B. That's, that's my vocation. And for me, this is my 23rd year in ministry, and, and that's kind of a challenge for people to think that their work is their vocation, because I can't tell you how many times over this last couple of decades people have complained to me, I just hate my job. Here's a, here's a sort of test I can prove this is empirical evidence. If on Monday morning, 7 a.m., you scroll through your Facebook feed, like 90% of what you see is people going, oh, I have to go to work today, hate my job. I don't want to go do this, right? That's what we see. People are dissatisfied. Have you ever felt that way? 
Like, what do you do if your job stinks? Like, it's draining. Like, some of us would rather live in a van down by the river than go to our job. And guess what? We're not alone because studies show that almost half of Americans hate their jobs. They're not satisfied with their jobs. The the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics did a long-term study of of baby boomers, and they studied from the time that they were 18 to 48, how many jobs did they have? Any guesses? Call it out. Seven? Ten? That's pretty close. 11.7. But here's the thing. 27% of baby boomers from the ages of 18 to 48 uh, changed jobs more than 15 times. Now, I know a lot of people that identify their identity in their career, in their work, in their vocation. And I, I have to admit that that's probably me as well, that I identify my vocation as the thing that I do and that my identity, I find it there. In 2008, you remember the, the recession of 2008, I was pastoring in Chicago, and it was, a, it was especially hit hard in that part of the country. And I had lots of conversations with people in our church who uh, were laid off. I also had conversations with people who were forced to retire early. Maybe they were 59 or 60, and you know they had worked their way up the salary chain, and they were let go, and the company hired a 25-year-old fresh out of school to do their job for half what they got paid. I also know that as companies downsized, guess what? They didn't downsize their workload. They just redistributed all the work to other people. So now people are getting the same wage and and getting paid uh, the same, but doing twice as much work. And one thing that I noticed that was really interesting in that season in our country's history, at least with the people that I interacted with, is that so many people felt such a loss of their identity because their job changed. And the media reported story after story of people who took their own life because they lost their jobs and therefore their identity. You know, I have to wonder if the reason that people hate their jobs and bounce from their jobs and and maybe even lose themselves within their jobs is because they don't really understand what vocation is supposed to be all about. And for most of us, when we're asked what is our vocation, we pair it with our job, and that's understandable. But I need you to hear me today as we get started. Your vocation is not your job. Your job is a part of, but not equal to, your vocation. Again, your vocation is not your job. Your job is a part of your vocation. And what I want to do this morning is I want to propose that who you are becoming is just as important as what you're doing. And so I want to walk through the big idea today, and I'm going to say it over and over, I'm going to drill it into our heads. Vocation is becoming who God created you to be and doing what God created you to do. Your vocation is becoming the person that God designed you and created you to be and doing the work that God created you to do. And that's what we're we're going to talk about. And that means that your vocation is so much more than your J-O-B, the work that you do. And so I want to help us see that our vocation is more than just a job that pays the bills, puts food on the table, those sorts of things. It should be us being completely on mission with God. Now, fortunately, the scriptures really give us a lot of insight into what our vocation should be about. And I'm going to invite you this morning, we're going to unpack Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 together. So go ahead and turn there, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this is kind of a, a meaty, even though it's only three little verses, it's a pretty significant piece of scripture with huge implications. And before we get too far down the road in, in trying to figure out what a transformed vocation is supposed to look like, I want to frame it up by looking at a foundational concept. Verse 8 and 9. For by, read this with me, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is what? The gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You know, it's really interesting how Paul sets up this passage, isn't it? And instead of just diving into an explanation about how God created us and gave us things to do, he framed it with a reminder that all of this is God's work. And in case we think that, that we somehow can do something to earn God's favor, that if I just did all the right things, I can have salvation. If I did all the right things, I'm okay with God. Paul's very careful to say that this is, salvation is God's work. It's not our work. He's not saying that work is bad. He's not saying works are bad. In fact, he's kind of saying the opposite, that, that good works are good and that God laid out good works for us to do. But he's also contrasting works that earn favor with God and works that honor God and fall into God's plan for his kingdom. And listen, that's really easy to get messed up. So many people think they have to work to earn favor with God. They just have to do the right set of things and now they're okay with God. Instead of seeing that their work, the things that they do, it's an overflow out of the work that God has done in them. Maybe that's you. You know, in Chicago, we had a Saturday night service, and we called that the Recovering Catholic Service because about 80% of the people in there were Catholics. And I remember being really thrown off when we moved from the Bible Belt to Chicago, and someone came up to me and said, well, what time does Mass start? And I was like, Mass? What is that? And then I was like, oh, wait a second, you're Catholic. But many of those people, it was really hard for them to get this concept because in their mind, it was, well, I got to do this, and I have to attend this, and I have to give this, and I have to do all these things. And if I do all those things, maybe, just maybe, I can have favor with God. You see, it's so important that we understand the difference between salvation, which is a free gift from God, and serving Jesus, which is a response to that free gift from God. Who's with me? See, this is one of the key issues of the Reformation. It was, it was helping say that our standing has nothing to do with God. You don't have to pay penance. You don't have to earn your way. You don't have to buy your way in with an indulgence. none of that kind of stuff. We don't have to do that, that it's a free gift of grace. And Paul says, not by yourself, not of yourself, and not by work so that no one can boast. So you can't go around bragging going, I saved myself. Saved myself. Nothing? No? You can't do it. You can say it, but you'll look like a fool. So don't say it. So Paul's making sure we get the picture here. Before we dive too much into what God's done in us and through us and wants to do to use us, he wants to clearly distinguish the difference between that and salvation, that it's from grace alone that we receive salvation. But I think as we're going to see that grace also, it's God's grace, God's desire, God's heart to partner with us in his creation. Look at verse 10. This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And I want to start with that very first part. We are God's handiwork. I want to camp out there just for a second. The, the NIV uses that term handiwork. The ESV might say uh, workmanship. But the, the Greek word here is the word poema. What does that word sound like? 
poem. As a matter of fact, when I was trying to write my notes for preaching today, my stupid computer kept auto-correcting poema to poem. No, no, no. But it's a similar idea. I love poetry. When I was a kid, studying poetry and liturgy was so amazing that someone could sit down with a blank piece of paper and flow out poetry. Isn't that beautiful? And poems are the work of a, of a creative artist. And listen, guess what? So are you. Oh, man. It, it, poema is sort of saying that an artist skillfully knit you together just as you are. And the psalmist makes this clear in Psalm 139, saying, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. That sounds like a craftsman to me. How about you? At night, when I'm bored and I need something to watch, I inevitably go to the documentary category. And some of my favorite documentaries to watch are people who create things. There's, a, there's a, an amazing one called The Birth of Saki. about these people who give half of their year to creating Saki, and it's so cinematic and beautiful. Um, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, I love that uh, documentary. But these people who are crafting things. I love watching people take a piece of wood that's raw and just carve it and shape it and put it together and stain it and make something really beautiful out of that. I love when I get a latte and they do really cool latte art. You know, isn't that cool? Um, I love, uh, there's a Japanese restaurant in Boulder I went to that's a very traditional Japanese restaurant, and, and you sit down at this little bar, you take your shoes off at the door, and you go in, and an artisan chef makes it right in front of you. I'm not talking hibachi, I'm saying like beautifully carved cucumbers and carrots and all these amazing things. It creates this one-of-a-kind, unique thing and sets it right in front of you. Uh, I think of my friend Steve, who you're going to meet here in just a few minutes, uh, and how he uses his hands to craft bread. I love the way that the voice uh, translation renders this verse. It says, for we are the product of his hand, heaven's poetry etched on lives. That's talking about us. It's not talking about this mysterious other people. It's talking about you and I. See, for many of us, it's pretty hard to get our mind wrapped around the fact that God has uniquely made us and that he uniquely created unique things for us to do. And so often we fail to see our own worth in Christ. And, and for many of us, we see ourselves as generic and vanilla, as average, as just uh, sort of ordinary. And so out of that place, out of the way we see who God's created us to be, we have a distorted view of that. We see our work, we see our family, we see our interaction with the world all through that same lens. So if you want to transform your vocation, I would propose that the first step is to think about who you are and who you're becoming. I, uh, I, I need a, at some point I'm going to get like a long family dining room table. And I could go to Ikea and get that. You know, they sell those and everything else. And it'll look good for a while unless I move it. <laughs> but I can tell you, I love to have people over. Annette and I, we love to have people over and just gather around a table with a meal. Love to cook, love to host. Um, but I can tell you if I buy this, this sweet dining room table from Ikea, and you come sit at my table, I'm not going to be super jazzed about telling you the origin or the genesis of this table. This is an Ikea piece here. It was made in a factory. Millions of other people have this same table. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say anything. If you say, oh, where'd you get this? I don't want to say it's from Ikea. Now, I've got a friend of mine named Kylie who was in my youth group uh, my very first church, and now he's an adult, got a bunch of kids, and he creates this unbelievable dining room furniture at, with his hands. 
He built that. He took wood, he planed it, he cut it, he glued it, he stained it, he did all those sorts of things. And I hope someday to be able to have one of his tables in my home. How many of you know if I have a table that's unique like that, that's handcrafted by an artisan, when you come have a meal with me at my house and you bring a really expensive bottle of wine with you, we're going to sit down at this table and I'm going to tell you about the, the origin of this table. Do you see where I'm going with this? That is you. You are not Ikea. There are billions of people on this planet, but you are fearfully and wonderfully made by a master craftsman. And that means that you have a unique set of abilities and a unique voice and something to say and unique things to do and a unique personality and a unique perspective on this earth. You are unique. And remember, your vocation is becoming who God created you to be and doing what God created you to do. And that starts with this understanding first that you are created to be something unique. And that means that inherently you have worth. And I know that there are people in this room that need to hear this because maybe as a kid you were told that you're not good enough. Maybe as an adult you've played the comparison game for a majority of your adulthood. Maybe you're a young adult and you're living in a world looking at your friends and you're comparing yourself to them. And you start to wonder, like, am I a mistake? I want to tell you that you are a masterpiece, not a mistake. And I'm going to say it again because you need to hear it, and I need to hear it. You are a masterpiece, not a mistake. So if you could move out of your self-doubt and those voices that say you stink and you're not good enough and all that, and start to embrace the fact that you're a masterpiece, not a mistake, you're well on your way to partnering with God through your vocation. The, the scripture goes on to say, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So, so we are God's masterpiece, a unique creation, and we're told that we're created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. Now, I can remember being 13 or 14, and my dad had me go do some hard work on the farm, and we had cows and pigs and all this sort of stuff, and um, I think it was out when I was building a fence. My dad told me to go do this, and I was having a hard time. Uh, we were using a type of wood that was very, very hard, and then these little steeples trying to put barbed wire onto this fence, and they kept ricocheting off into the field and hitting my hand and all this sort of stuff. And I started getting progressively angry. And then finally, out of frustration, I finally exploded, and I cursed Adam and Eve for making me work. <laughs> You're laughing because you've done this too. If it weren't for you guys, I wouldn't have to be doing this, because we all know that, that uh, if the fall had never happened, we wouldn't have to work, right? No, not exactly, actually. See, for some of us, we blame Adam and Eve for having to work, not realizing that the scriptures are clear that work is a part of God's design. That it was pre-fall, and I believe it's into eternity we're doing things on behalf of God. So if we start our gospel narrative at Genesis chapter 3, which is unfortunately where many of us start, Genesis 3 is... Uh, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, right? Um, that's what Romans tells us. It's, that's our mindset. That's where the story begins. Well, if all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that's where we start, then anything associated with sin might be bad then. So work and sin, is that a result of the fall? Is work a result of the fall? No. But if we correctly start the gospel narrative at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we'll see that God's design has always been to partner with us through our work, not just because of sin not just because of the fall. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to sort of look at Genesis 1 and 2. Um, for God created man, humankind in his image, and the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, 
and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now, don't tune out because you've heard this passage a bazillion times. Listen, God gave some very specific instructions. He says, be fruitful and multiply. And most humans like that kind of work. He says, fill the earth. He says, subdue it. That means to bring it under control, to bring order to it. He says, rule over it. The Hebrew word there is radah, which means to rule over and to dominate. That all sounds like work to me. Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. That sounds like work. Uh, So out of the ground, the Lord formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. Now, God could easily have just written the entire story and had all the little details and like those really helpful Ikea instructions, given them the Garden of Eden tender manual, and they just did everything that way, already baked in. But instead, God created all of these sorts of things, including humankind, and tasked them with doing the work to shape it, to subdue it, to bring it into order. And so God allowed Adam to name the animals, to tend the garden, to, to work. And, and remember, this is all pre-fall. This is before sin entered the equation. And then if we fast forward to the end sort of, of the book, Revelation chapter 1, we see that Jesus comes to the earth. And what does he do? He comes among his people. That God comes among his people, and they, they will be his people, and he will be their God. We will be continuing that work of shaping and moving and doing things with God for all of eternity. So the beginning of the story and in the end of the story, we see the scriptures saying that we're going to partner together with him, ruling and reigning and working. So first, to transform your vocation, first you might want to consider that you're a masterpiece, that you're handcrafted. Nobody looks under an Ikea table to see who the manufacturer is. But if you say this is an artisan thing, typically an artist writes their name. Guess what? God has written his imprint on you. The Imago Dei inside you. And you're unique. And you're fearfully and wonderfully made. But secondly, we might want to embrace that God has created you to work, to partner with him in the renewal of all things. So, so God is become, uh, your vocation is becoming who God created you to be, embracing that you're a masterpiece, but also doing good works. Why? Because God has designed you to do good works. Now, because of grace, because of the Reformation, some people uh, don't like using language around good works. Um, but the scriptures are filled with that. God desires for us to do good works. And so no matter what situation you find yourself in, this is what your vocation is all about. Not just that little job that you happen to occupy at this stage of life, or not just retirement, or not just being in between jobs or whatever. It, it's by God's work that we're created as a masterpiece. And that we're gifted the best gift, which is salvation, and what we're designed as the overflow of that to do good works. And so, so good works are a result of truly knowing Jesus, of truly following Jesus. If you know Jesus and you've accepted that he's made you unique, the natural overflow of your heart is to do good things. And so look at your life. Would your life say that you know Jesus? Or are you a cranky, mean person? 
Look at the person next to you and ask them to be honest with you. Listen, if you embrace this idea that you're a masterpiece, handcrafted, that, that God cares about who you're becoming, that he has called you to do good works for the sake of the kingdom, it might reframe what you see about your job tomorrow. It might reframe how you interact with people in your home or in the grocery store or whatever it might be. If you truly see that God's made you unique and wants to use you to partner with him in the kingdom for the sake of others, your attitude tomorrow toward working in a cube or uh, being a, a different kind of work, whatever it might be, might be just a little bit different. And then finally, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And that's kind of... Uh, intimidating because that means that God has some kind of plan. And I like to know what the plan is. How about you? Like, I don't like the whole, let's be a little bit ambiguous. I don't know about you, but I have never been like, Lord, what is your will for my life? What is your plan for my life? And a plane flies over with a giant banner saying, do X, Y, Z. Sometimes maybe God could use that. He's never chosen to do that with me. And so for me, part of the Christian journey is learning to be present to what the Spirit is doing in the moment, just trying to listen. I remember as a kid, uh, my parents worked about 30 minutes away, and they worked in a factory, and they would leave about 6 in the morning, and they wouldn't get home until 6 at night. And so they did what most parents did. They gave me a list of stuff to do when they left, like feed the cows and the chickens and the hogs and mow the grass. Maybe I had to build and repair some fence. And then the thing that every kid loves to hear from your parents, clean your room. That's what they told me to do. And so I did what most teenage boys did. I messed around all day. I did whatever I wanted to do. And then at 4.30 or 5, I crammed through that list and got it done just as they pulled into the driveway, sat back on the couch like I'd been sitting there for hours. I'm convinced that God has laid work out for us to do. But part of formation as a follower of Jesus is partnering with God to figure out what that is. For most of us, it's not exactly it's this or it's exactly that. So what I want to do in the remainder of our time together is just give you two parts of vocation that I think will shape you, that will help you see what you're supposed to be about in this life. The first part is what I'm going to call foundational vocation, the bottom line, to know Jesus and to make him known. What's our foundational vocation? Well, the thing all of us has been created for, it's our primary vocation, it's to know Jesus and to make him known. At the beginning of this series, we, we looked in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 17, and I'm going to read that again for us through verse 20. So if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled himself, uh, us to himself through Christ and has given us this ministry of reconciliation. That's our job. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we're ambassadors of Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now listen, it's really easy to make our work an idol, isn't it? To make it the thing that our identity is wrapped up in. To think that the work that I do, the profession that I'm in, the thing maybe even I went to school for and paid a lot of money for, that that is uh, my idol. It's, it, that's my highest calling. But honestly, the scriptures are clear that the foundational calling of everyone who claims to follow Jesus is to know Christ and to make him known. Now, if you're here today and you're not following Jesus yet, that's not your mandate, but God desires it for you. But if you do follow Jesus, you need to know him and make him known, to be an ambassador for Christ, to, to live out this ministry of reconciliation. 
And so whether you work in a cubicle or a nice cushy office or you're, you work remotely or maybe you're retired or even if you're between jobs, a significant part of your vocation is the same as every other person in this room and that is to represent Jesus, to be an ambassador of Christ, to show people what living in his way with his heart looks like. That's your foundational vocation. All of us. All means all. Everybody. But then I would ask, well, does God want to leverage how he's uniquely made you to be? Because if my, my job is to uh, know Christ and to make him known, what about the unique skills that God's given me? What about the unique abilities that God's given me? What about the uniqueness that God's put inside of me, the unique desires and passions? Well, I'm going to call that our specific vocation. Our specific vocation is gifting yourself to the kingdom of God for the sake of others. Gifting yourself to the kingdom of God for the sake of others. And I'm going to give you a little out here. Everybody look at me just for one second. This is the one time it's okay to re-gift something. This is the one time it's okay to re-gift something. Who God made you to be. It's a gift from God that you are who you are. And a gift for God to give who you are to the kingdom of God for the sake of others. I love what David Benner, who's a psychologist and an author, said. He said, our vocation is always a response to a divine call to take our place in the kingdom of God. I just want to stop just for a second. Not just the job that I have. It's taking my place in the kingdom of God. This is why we talk about kingdom so much. The gospel is kingdom. Jesus talked about, uh, repent, the kingdom is near. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And so we have a role to play in this kingdom. He goes on to say, Our vocation is a call to serve God and our fellow humans in the distinctive way that fits the shape of our being. In one way or another, Christian calling will always involve the care of God's creation and people. See, you might be thinking, well, you're saying gift myself to the kingdom of God. That sounds a little bit pretentious, doesn't it? Well, it's not pretentious. It's obedience. All of us have a specific vocation. All of us, I think God desires for us to get to know the person that he's created us to be and to leverage it for the sake of others, all of us. See, we don't transform our, our vocation, our relationships, our mind and our emotions, our resources, and all the things we've been talking about in this series um, for the sake of ourselves. No, no, no. We, we allow the Spirit to transform us toward the wholeness of Christ for the sake of who? Others. And so it's good to know how you're wired and what God has birthed in you uh, what, what your natural strengths and abilities are. It's good to know what your life experiences are, even if they're not good ones. God uses the not good experiences to shape us just as much as the good ones. Also, what your passions and your desires are. And if you were to sort of go, what's my specific vocation? If you took the, 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 the three areas of your abilities, natural abilities and life experiences, and you paired it with your passions and desires, what gets you excited, And then thirdly, uh, the needs of others. If you took those three things, the needs of others, your own passions, and how God's uniquely made you, you'd probably start getting a clue about what God's specific vocation is for you. I've learned that as as you journey through assessments and things like this, it might be kind of painful, but it's also a lot of joy to sort of start scraping the surface and going, oh, I see the diamond in the rough. This is one of the reasons why at South, we're committed to formation. It's one of the reasons why we have an Enneagram class. So you can go sign up and journey in a cohort with other people and take some assessments and have some honest conversation to find out a little bit more about how God has uniquely wired you. 
But you don't have to go to a class to do that. You could simply just talk to people that know you well. Have what, what, are, what is called an I see in you conversation. What do you see in me? How am I wired? What do you think I'm good at? How have you seen God use me through my own natural giftings and abilities? That's a powerful conversation. And I want you to hear me. Even if you don't have a J-O-B, whether you, you're in between jobs or maybe you're retired, you still have a vocation. God's not done with you yet. Did you know this? My friend Carolyn, you, many of you probably know Carolyn. She's been in this church for a long time. She's 77 years old. She doesn't have a J-O-B, but she has a vocation. And when I first met her, I sort of observed how she interacted with people. One thing I saw is Carolyn is ubiquitous. She is everywhere at all times. She's like one step under the Holy Spirit. I don't know how she does it, but I mean, she's like everywhere. She's mentoring everyone all the time. It's kind of unbelievable. So one day I said, Carolyn, I figured out what you are. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, you're our chaplain. You're the chaplain of this body. You're like the corporate mentor. And it really bothered her. She's like, I'm not the chaplain. And then later, I've heard her. It's been fun over the years. And you know her introducing herself. Larry says I'm the parish chaplain. (laughs) It's because she is. The truth is, knowing your foundational vocation and your specific vocation can have a huge impact on which jobs you choose to work in and how you approach that job. Even if uh, you're in a a job that you think is a dead-end job, understanding that God wants to use you could shift how you see that job. But it also should shift how you see your role at home and in your neighborhood, at your job, your vocation, the city, and the world. Why? Because your vocation is becoming who God created you to be and doing what God created you to do. And that is not dependent exclusively on your job. Now, I get it. There are times when we don't know our specific vocation, and I just want you to hear me. That's okay. And maybe you're in a situation where you're agitated right now because you feel like you know about yourself. You have an understanding of who you are, but maybe other people around you aren't seeing it yet. You feel underutilized. What if this week you chose to, instead of engaging the world, focusing on every single ability you have and how it's not being used, uh, you focus on not getting frustrated um, about what you know to be true about yourself not being known by others. What if instead you decided to put your ear to the ground and to allow the spirit to guide you, to be a student of the artisan. I I can tell you that there are plenty of times in my life where I felt unknown, that I felt underutilized. I felt like I had something to offer and people just didn't see it. And it was really frustrating. But I can honestly, with some reflection, look back and say that in those times, Jesus was my teacher. He was teaching me. He was using that circumstance to teach me how he wanted to use me for his kingdom. And I believe that Jesus wants to be your teacher as well. So I want to challenge you, wherever you're at, whatever stage you're at in your life, to bloom where you're planted. And even if you don't even know what your specific vocation is, you know what your foundational vocation is. Lean into that. Be available. Be hungry to learn and to grow. Use your circumstances as a learning opportunity and see what God might do to shape you through that. One last thing I want to say about what it is that God's calling you to do as you get farther and farther in intimacy with Jesus. A lot of people throughout the years, they would say, I'm, I've, I've fallen in love with Jesus, I'm following hard after Jesus, and, and I, so I, I'm just working up so I can go to work at a church. I want to tell you that working at church is not the highest calling. 
If you can find any other career than being a pastor or working at church, please do that. It's really hard. And it's not for everyone. And there's nothing magical about being a professional Christian. I'm that guy that no matter where I go, people always ask me to do the prayer, even if it's not Sunday. And I'm like, I just want you to pray so we can eat. I don't always have to be a professional prayer. Erwin McManus one time said, when you do the sort of go around the circle and ask what do you do and you tell them you're a pastor, for a lot of people it's like telling them that you're a cannibal and inviting them over for dinner. (laughs) See, but here's the thing. Like I sometimes am envious of people who aren't in the church who are making an impact in their neighborhood, in their community, because you don't have that stigma. You can say, I do X, Y, Z, and people will listen to you. You have a better opportunity to show people in your day-to-day life how to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus than I do. So don't look at me as a professional Christian or Aaron as a professional Christian or those of us on the stage as if that's magically sort of the goal. It is not. The goal is to bloom where you're planted, to let God use you to become who God created you to be and do what he called you to do whether that's in a cube or being an accountant or a plumber or a doctor or a lawyer or a stay-at-home mom, and on and on it goes, whatever you find yourself in, be who God created you to be. And you can often have far more of an impact outside of these church walls than I can. I mentioned my friend Steve earlier, and I want you to meet Steve. He's an amazing person. I admire him very much, and I think he really gets it when it comes to vocation. Take a look. We, we probably had little to no idea of what we were getting into, honestly. There have been those fun moments, but uh, Penny and I have both said we've never worked harder in our lives. So I'm Steve Schroeder, and we've been at South probably two and a half years now. And it was in high school when I sensed that God was inviting me to consider being a youth pastor. Penny and I got married after she graduated and started the journey of being in full-time ministry, as, as in paid ministry with the church. I was a youth pastor five years. Then we went and planted a church in Bellingham, Washington, and I got to experience church planting, all the challenges and opportunities that come with that. After about 13 years, we had a call from a church in Kansas for me to come and be their lead pastor there. 34 years of straight pastoral ministry, Penny and I began to have a conversation about what would I do in retirement and would I always be a pastor? When Penny and I had this conversation, I was probably 58 or 59, and so I started thinking, but if I only had a few years left, what would I want to do? Immediately we thought of our kids and our grandkids who were living here in Denver. And I remember where I was standing in our kitchen when Penny said, well, what would you do if you weren't a pastor? This idea came into my head and I kind of think maybe it was Jesus, I don't know, but the idea was I would buy a Great Harvest Bread Company and I would run the store. (laughs) It's like, where did that come from? So we looked into it and sure enough, there was a store for sale in Denver Right at that very time, I had, I had been intentionally working on my own spiritual growth and reading a lot of stuff from Dallas Willard and James Bryan Smith. And I, you know, so Jesus comes to heal us from our diseases, and I think we all have diseases. And I don't think I recognized very clearly what some of mine were. 
the disease that I kind of figured out that God was showing me I had was, was this disease of seeking the approval of people and living for their approval. And, you know, to be honest, being a pastor feeds that disease. Like, you're in the limelight every, every Sunday. When you're done preaching, there's a lineup of people that want to talk to you. And I think he was saying a couple things. One is, I care more about who you're becoming than what you're doing. And he pulled me out of the limelight, kind of into obscurity. Like, I work in the back of the bakery a lot, and I go shopping, and I deliver food. I, I'm also learning that the workplace is probably his primary classrooms for discipleship. Like, this is where he wants us to grow, to learn about who we're becoming, to learn to love our enemy. and. When I get to deal with customers that are grumpy, Jesus will say to me, well, Steve, you're grumpy too sometimes, <laughs> and look how I treat you. So it's an opportunity to learn that. I'm, I'm trying to learn from Jesus that I'm just, I'm, I'm a child of His, created in His image. I'm an eternal being with an eternal destiny, and I live in an the unshakable kingdom of God. I'm here because it's my new classroom. Am I allowing that to shape my character, to become more like Him in this environment? We need godly teachers and business people and repair people. We need Jesus kind of people in every aspect of business in the world. We need that. The highest calling isn't what I can do for Jesus, but it's who I can become in Jesus, in Christ, who I am. Once, once I begin to see clearly that that's what He wants, is not, first of all, my service or my profession. He wants me. That no matter what voc vocation you're in, it's a calling from God. Often it's, it's a way of partnering with God in answering somebody's prayer. So there's people out there praying, give us this day our daily bread. And I'm working with 17 people at the bakery making sure that they get their daily bread. And I can see why he's not calling everyone into professional paid ministry. And we can all see our occupation or our vocation as a calling from him as an opportunity to, to learn from Him in that environment and to partner with Him in what He's doing in the world. Wow. Isn't that cool? Also, I'm starving. <laughs> so I want to end today by asking this question I ask a lot. What about you? You know, maybe you're a young adult and you're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. Maybe you're a middle-aged adult and you're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. <laughs> maybe you're an older adult and you're convinced God's not through with you yet. I was meeting with a friend of mine uh, recently. She's in her 70s and she heard one of these talks that I gave in this series and she came up to me afterward and she said, what you just talked about, I want that. And she said, I, I don't know how much time the Lord has given me left on this earth, but I want it to count. I thought, man, that is, 
That is somebody that, that, that Jesus is shaping and forming. And regardless of what age you are, Jesus is pulling you forward. He wants to use you. He wants to really get to know you. Not the, the beat down you, the, the lies that maybe you've believed all your life, but the real you. I think that's so beautiful. I love how Steve said that, that our vocation often is being the answer to someone else's prayer. And, and what if you got up tomorrow and you sort of thought about your day and you set your intention on whatever it is that I do today, Lord, let me be the answer to someone's prayer. And maybe it's in that cube that you're working in or maybe it's in your home with your kids or your spouse. Maybe it's in the grocery line with that person with all their coupons in front of you. You know, maybe if we thought like this, God might actually use you to answer someone's prayer. And and what if instead of asking someone, well, what do you do? What if we looked at those that God's put in our path and said, who are you becoming? And what if instead of measuring ourselves as what I do, that I am good because of my outputs, what if I just asked the question, who am I becoming? You know, here at South, we don't want to just have a sermon and you hear it. We want to give you practical things, practices and tools you can use to reflect and actually have movement in your life. This is a part of your formation. And so I just want to give you three words to end with. And I want to encourage you to write these down. Three words to to reflect on, to see where you are, what movement might look, might look like for you. The first word is accept. For some of us, we, we haven't accepted yet that we're special. We haven't accepted that we're a, a work of art, that we are uh, God's masterpiece. And for some of us today, I know you need to hear that, and I'm going to invite you to accept that. And maybe some of you would not, have not accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. I'd love for you to consider doing that today, and I'd love to baptize you next week. You need to accept that God made you unique and special and full of worth. And then for all of us, we need to embrace, embrace the season we're in. And for some of us, that's going to you, university, meaning I'm going to learn about myself, or I'm going to follow Jesus in the midst of my context. For some of you, you need to embrace the fact that God wants to use you to be an answer to someone else's prayer, even if you're in a job that you don't especially care for. And maybe for some of you, you need to embrace the fact that you know who God's made you to be and you know what God's calling you to do and you're afraid to do it. Have the courage to be the person God created you to be and do what God called you to do. And then for all of us, I'm gonna invite you to prayerfully ask God's spirit to begin to show you how you can be used to make a real difference in the kingdom of God, at home, in your job, and beyond. And ask Jesus how you can make the most of your life for his name and for his glory. Remember, your vocation is becoming who God created you to be and doing what God created you to do. And my prayer is that you would accept the person God created you to be, that you would embrace the season that you're in, that that you'd ask God's spirit to show you how he wants to use you to impact others. And my prayer is that tomorrow, for all of us, when you get up and embrace your day, you wouldn't live it out as a dead-end job or simply a means to put food on the table, but you'd rather see it as an opportunity to partner with God to build his kingdom for the sake of others. And South Fellowship Church, hear me. Imagine if we really were the kind of church committed to knowing Jesus and making him known as our foundation. Guess what we are? 
Imagine if we were the kind of church filled with people committed to learning and practicing the way of Jesus in every season of our life, even if it's not perfect. Imagine if we were the kind of church committed to helping people discover who God had created them to be and then doing our very best to empower and equip them to do it. Church, if we were like that kind of church, that's a powerful church that turns communities upside down, that partners with God's kingdom for the sake of others. And I'm convinced that is the kind of church that God is calling South Fellowship Church to be. Would you bow your head and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, I am so grateful that you allow us to partner with you for your good work, for your kingdom's sake. And I pray that you would help us to become the people you've created us to be and to to do the things that you've called us to do. I pray that you would walk with us all the days of our lives, lead us into things that blow our minds that, that we never could imagine. Help us to sense a father's love today for those in this room who are struggling to see that they are okay and that you love them as they are and that you've created them fearfully and wonderfully made. Lord, would we all sense your spirit within us and become who you've created us to be and accept your great gift of salvation, forgiveness, and the person you've made us to be. And I ask all these things in the strong, the powerful name of Jesus. And together this church said, amen. I I know we're a little bit over time, but... Uh, I'm going to invite you just to stand and we're just going to sing.